Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and I have a confession. I am a scared little baby. Whenever Halloween comes back around, I remember how much I hate scary movies, scary stories, and generally anything that causes anxiety in any way. My most sacred October ritual is watching practical magic while giving myself a manicure. If you're the kind of person watching movies like The Exorcist, Get Out, or Night of the Living Dead, I salute you, I respect you, but I do not understand you. But this year, I'm going outside my comfort zone to bring you some genuinely spooky content starring one of the wildest ladies in the French history books. I don't know about you, but I could do with a little angry vengeance right now, just a little bit of hell raising. So today, change out of your day pajamas and into a black veil, light a pillar candle, and sharpen your swords. Piracy is our only option. In 1328, the French king, Charles IV, did a very inconsiderate thing. To the great inconvenience of everyone in Western Europe, he died without leaving a male heir. No sons, no brothers, not even any useful old uncles. It's never a good idea for a king to die without a line of succession, but Charles really could not have chosen a worse time. He'd spent his entire reign squabbling with his mortal enemies, the English, and now they'd be making a play for his throne. The fight for Charles's crown would waste everyone's time, money, and lives for the next five generations, with everyone picking sides, double-crossing one another, then picking the other side, and then double-crossing one another again. The fight was so epic, so complicated, and ultimately so, so stupid that George R. R. Martin would use it as the inspiration for Game of Thrones. And just like Game of Thrones, it had a sad trombone sound of an ending. The Hundred Years' War eventually became something like white noise, just a constant clash going on in the background, all while Europe lurched its way through the Middle Ages, wrestling with big questions about God and death and what it means to be human. One of the most important questions Europe was tackling during this time had grave implications for the Hundred Years' War itself. What to do about women? Can't live with them. Can't make heirs if you send them all to a nunnery. Throughout the 13th and 14th centuries, rascally women kept scuppering the plans of powerful men. They were claiming thrones, leading armies into battle, sleeping with the enemy, dying in childbirth when men needed them to live, surviving the bubonic plague when men needed them to die, and in at least one extremely memorable occasion, taking to the high seas for a blood-soaked reign of terror. This week, join me for an extra spooky examination of the life of the lady pirate, Jeanne de Clisson, the Lioness of Brittany. In the year 1322, Charles IV inherited his older brother's crown and his older brother's nemesis. In the 14th century, the area we now know as France was really a motley assortment of territories, 
some of them more obedient to the crown than others. Ever since Guillaume, Duc de Normandie, sailed across the Channel to conquer England in 1066, the kings of England had laid claim to various duchies and land holdings which were just too close to Paris for comfort. For example, the beautiful, profitable Duchy of Aquitaine used to belong to the French crown for a little bit until Eleanor of Aquitaine divorced the King of France and married the King of England. But the English kings were getting uppity. As the Duke of Aquitaine, the King of England was supposed to bend the knee to the King of France, or so the King of France said, conveniently enough for him. In 1291, the English king, Edward I, had stopped paying tribute to Charles's father, Philip. Philip insisted on treating King Edward like a duke, not a fellow king, and if you can believe it, this caused offense. After a bunch of fighting, it was agreed. Charles's father, King Philip, would allow King Edward I to marry the French king's sister, Margaret, in exchange for Edward returning the territory of Gascony to France for a little while, just, you know, as a show of obedience. And after a while, the king of France would return Gascony, and all would be well. But it was a trick. The English king, Edward, handed Gascony over to Philip, and Philip refused to hand it back. As you can imagine, King Edward didn't take that very well, and England began sharpening her swords against the French. But King Philip's victory was short-lived. While he racked up victories against his overseas enemies, trouble was brewing back home. On paper, at least, the French King Philip's dynasty appeared secure. He had three adult sons, including Charles, and one adult daughter. As good noble boys and girls, they were all four expected to marry for political advantage, and they all four did so. All three sons married girls from the houses of Burgundy, a rich and prosperous duchy, which King Philip was hoping to bring under French control. Meanwhile, King Philip attempted to patch things up with England by marrying his daughter, Isabella, off to Edward I's son. Okay, so far, so good. We've exchanged kids. This should work. But in 1314, King Philip's house was rocked by scandal. For poor Isabella, cast off across the English Channel, life was pretty miserable. Shunted off to the land of her enemies at the age of 12, Isabella found herself married to a young man who was definitely uninterested and probably homosexual. Whether she was bored or in the mood for a little family revenge, at the age of 19, Isabella decided to set her family's reputation on fire. That year, Isabella, her husband, and her father-in-law, King Edward I, set sail for France. It was supposed to be a moment of reconciliation between the two rival countries, embodied by Isabella herself, the bridge between the families. As any good guests might, the English brought gifts with them. Isabella brought a number of beautiful embroidered purses, which she gave to her sisters-in-law, the lovely ladies of Burgundy. But later in the visit, Isabella noticed something curious. The purses which she had given to her sisters-in-law appeared to have been re-gifted. They were now being carried around by a couple of handsome young knights. Isabella wasted no time snitching to her father, and before long, King Philip had his own daughters-in-law under surveillance. 
Eventually, to the astonishment of the nation, King Philip broke the news that at least two of his sons had been cuckolded. The heir to the throne, Louis, and his youngest son, Charles. Jury was still out on the other daughter-in-law. The two adulterous princesses were locked in the Tower of Nell. The handsome young knights were tortured and hanged. By the end of 1314, Philip himself was dead, possibly from embarrassment. The eldest son, Louis X, ascended to the French throne, with his wife still locked in a castle. Before long, Louis's wife died under mysterious circumstances. Some say she was strangled. Others say she was smothered by a mattress. Whatever the case, Louis didn't celebrate his freedom for very long. Soon after, he died playing tennis. Louis had gotten remarried after sticking his first wife in a tower, and his second wife gave birth to his only son a few months after Louis's death. Just in time, right? But Louis's posthumous heir died five days later. Now, the French throne passed to the late King Philip's middle son, Philip V. But it didn't pass to him without a fight. Poor dead Louis had an elder daughter, Joan, who claimed the throne for herself. All across France, legal scholars grappled with the question, could a woman inherit the throne? After the scandal of the two princesses and their infidelity, legal scholars felt confident in their answer. No, the throne could never pass through the female line. If the heir to the French throne's wife could cheat on him, the way Louis's wife seemed to have done, there was no way of knowing whether her children were really his. It's an interesting counterfactual. Would the French have allowed the throne to pass through the female line if it weren't for that specific scandal happening at that specific moment? Who knows? Philip V inherited the throne over his niece, but once again, his reign would not last for very long. Only six years later, Philip died of dysentery, and the throne passed to the youngest son, Charles IV. Like Louis, Charles's wife was locked up in a tower during his reign, and he made no moves to let her out. Instead, he annulled their marriage and sent her to a nunnery, after which point he remarried a woman who promptly died giving birth to a child. By the end of his reign, that child was the only child Charles had still living. But whoops, it was a daughter. The same legal decision which had given the throne to Charles's older brother now prevented the throne from passing to Charles's daughter, which brings us back to the year 1328. In the span of only a few years, the French throne had gone from totally secure, stable for generations, to a game of capture the flag, and France's old nemesis, England, was ready to play. Back across the channel, good old Isabella had been getting into mischief once again. Not content with ratting out her sisters-in-law, apparently, Isabella returned home intent on destroying her husband. Joining forces with her lover, Isabella encouraged her son, Edward III, to take up arms against his father, Edward II. The plan worked. Edward III assumed the English throne in 1327, 
just in time to watch his rival across the channel kick the bucket. With Charles's daughter unable to inherit the throne, the French crown would instead pass to Charles's male cousin, Philip the Fortunate. Young Edward saw his chance. Okay, the young king told European nobility. Of course a woman can't inherit a throne. Obviously. Duh, that would be ridiculous. But what if, go with me here, what if a man could inherit the throne through a woman? You know, come to think of it, I really think I should be the king of France. And with that, the Hundred Years' War was born. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of the Hundred Years' War, because even in quarantine, none of us really have that kind of time, here's what matters most for our story today. The Hundred Years' War is always portrayed as a war between the French and the English. But who exactly are those terms referring to? The English kings were descended from French nobility, and they held a bunch of territory across the Channel. Meanwhile, the land that we now call France was then composed of a bunch of different duchies, and only some of those considered themselves French in any sense of the word. The battle lines were not clearly drawn, and over the next hundred years, the battle lines often shifted one way and then another. And there's no better example of these shifting loyalties than the subject of this week's story, Jeanne de Clisson. Jeanne de Clisson was born Jeanne de Belleville in a castle on the coast of Brittany. For centuries, England and France fought over who got to claim Brittany. As the name implies, the British had a heavy influence in the region. The Breton language, derived from Celtic tongues, has much more in common with Gaelic than French. The lords of Brittany were the first to help William the Conqueror invade England, and they were rewarded with territories across the Channel. But Brittany was across the Channel from England. She shared a border with France, and her people were divided in their loyalties. In truth, if you asked most residents of Brittany whether they felt they were English or French, most of them would tell you, I'm Breton. Young Jean was no different. Jean's parents married her off to a local nobleman at the age of 12. She gave birth to two children by the age of 15 before her husband died, and suddenly Jean was the hottest widow in town. Two years later, just as King Charles was kicking the bucket, leaving France without an heir, Jean married Guy de Pontieve. It was a hell of a match. He was the second son of the Duke of Brittany himself. Right from the start, Guy's family complained that Jean was a gold digger, out to steal his titles and fortune. If you're wondering, isn't that the point of rich people marrying one another in the 13th century? The truth is, I don't get it either. But Guy's family somehow carried the day. After a few years, Jean's marriage was annulled. Guy's family would really regret this move later on. Jean, meanwhile, was the hottest widow in town again. Jean was exceedingly eligible, a rich teenager bestowed with valuable property from her late husband's estate, 
demonstrably fertile, with years of childbearing ahead of her, it's a surprise she managed to squeeze in any me-time before she married again. This time, Jeanne married Olivier de Clisson, another very rich member of the local Breton nobility. Jeanne and Olivier seemed well-suited to one another. They were the same age, they'd both been married before, they both owned lots of local property, and by all accounts, they appear to have genuinely loved each other. Together, Jeanne and Olivier had five more children, and things seemed to be going pretty well, until 1341, when Jeanne and Olivier found themselves embroiled in the biggest battle to hit Brittany in centuries. The Duke of Brittany, Jeanne's ex-father-in-law, had three sons with his first wife, including Jeanne's ex-husband, Guy de Pontiev. Then, after his first wife died, the Duke of Brittany remarried and went on to have one more son with his new wife. The Duke's sons from his first wife hated their stepmother, and they really hated their half-brother. But as the saying goes, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. By 1341, all three of the Duke's sons from his first marriage were dead, including Guy de Pontiev. As the French scholars had insisted only a few years earlier, French titles had to pass from man to man, right? That meant the dukedom of Brittany was set to pass into the hands of the dreaded fourth son, Jean de Montfort. This was a real problem. Not only did the local families hate Jean de Montfort, the French king, Philip the Fortunate, did too. Jean de Montfort was considered a sneaky, dubious fellow, and England supported his claim to the throne. Who wants to support the guy that England is rooting for? Then, just as Jean de Montfort was getting ready to assume control of Brittany, a new challenger appeared, Guy de Pontiev's daughter, Jeanne. If you're subscribed to my newsletter, you probably saw my recent issue about how everyone in France is named the same thing. Since this is going to be a confusing episode otherwise, I will now refer to Guy de Pontiev's daughter as Lil Jean. This is where things got wild. What should have been a regional dispute turned into an international proxy war, with England and France both wanting their guy in charge of Brittany, both because it was territorially useful and because it would make their enemy just so mad. In order to thwart England's candidate for the dukedom of Brittany, Lil Jean used England's own argument against them. Well, following the same logic of your king, Edward III, the duchy should not go to Jean de Montfort, Lil Jean said. If a title can pass through a woman, the way Edward III says it can, then the rightful heir isn't the duke's weird fourth son that nobody likes. It's me, the daughter of the duke's second son, who everybody loves, and my husband, Charles de Blois. Then, before Jean de Montfort could so much as put down a deposit on an event planner for his succession, Lil Jean and her husband, Charles de Blois, claimed the Duchy of Brittany for themselves. Truly honoring the spirit of fake it till you make it, Lil Jean and her husband simply moved into the capital of Brittany and said, okay, we're in charge now. 
and then they dared anybody else to call their bluff. It was like the Hundred Years' War on a teensy-tiny scale. Everybody, pick your side. The whole thing was insane. It was topsy-turvy. If you supported the English king's claim to the French throne, following his logic, you couldn't also support his choice for the Breton dukedom. If you supported the French king's claim to the French throne, following his logic, you couldn't also support his choice for the Breton dukedom. The same question that had been raised a few years ago was raised again, but now everybody who had answered one way had to answer the opposite way. Could a woman pass a title on to her son or her husband, or did everything have to pass through a man? Darn those pesky women with their pesky wombs, making everything complicated. For Jeanne and Olivier de Clisson, the choice was simple. They supported the French king over the English king, period. Supporting the French king meant you had to accept his argument that the crown could not pass through a woman. But... Supporting the French king's choice for the Duke of Brittany meant you had to accept his argument that a title could pass through a woman. No wonder this stupid war lasted for a hundred years. If you're confused, don't worry. Everyone back then was confused, too. Jeanne and Olivier de Clisson supported Lil Jeanne and her husband Charles de Blois, not only out of solidarity with other women named Jeanne, and not only because Jeanne de Clisson used to be married to Lil Jeanne's dad. They pledged loyalty to Lil Jeanne's husband, Charles de Blois, and within a few years, their loyalty would be put to the test, because King Edward III was coming to town. After Charles de Blois and Jean de Montfort both claimed the territory of Brittany for themselves, the French king, Philip VI, summoned everyone to Paris for a big formal proceeding. We're going to sort this out, and I, the king of France, along with my official tribunal, will issue a ruling once and for all. Jean de Montfort knew there was no way this tribunal would work out in his favor. So he skipped town, captured the capital of Brittany, and invited the nobility to come pay tribute to him, their new leader. Unfortunately for John, all of the Breton nobility knew which side their bread was buttered on, and they stayed home. Fine, Jean de Montfort said, time for a publicity tour. One of the first cities in Brittany to give Jean de Montfort its support was Vin, a decision they'd probably come to regret. Before long, Charles de Blois was knocking on the city gates of Vin. Oh, I wouldn't bother asking your neighbors to help you out, Charles informed the city officials. I've burned all your neighbors to the ground. The governor of Van bravely ran away, escaping to a nearby castle. While the governor met up with John de Montfort's army and plotted a way to break back into his own home, Charles de Blois's men took control of Van. Chief among his military leaders was none other than Olivier de Clisson, Back and forth and back and forth, the city of Vannes passed from English hands into French hands into English hands into French hands. In one particularly spectacular moment, Jean de Montfort's own wife, who was, if you can believe this, also named Jeanne, led her very own army to besiege the city gates, successfully, I might add. 
In December 1342, Olivier de Clisson stood in charge of the city of Vannes, guarding it on behalf of Charles de Blois. One night, the English attacked, captured Olivier, threw him in prison, and took back the city of Vannes for themselves. But then, all of a sudden, the English just released Olivier back to Charles de Blois in exchange for a small ransom and the release of one of their own men, just some English guy they had. It didn't make any sense. Olivier de Clisson was an important guy. He was the military general who was leading this army. Why on earth should the English give up such a valuable prisoner for basically nothing? Charles de Blois smelled a traitor. So he consulted with his ally, good old Uncle King Philip, to ask for advice. Could Olivier de Clisson be trusted? Was he a spy? What should I do? In January 1343, England and France signed a truce. Spoiler alert, it's called the Hundred Years' War. Don't get too attached. That month, Olivier and 15 other local noblemen from Brittany received invitations to a tournament. When they arrived, the men found themselves surrounded by armed guards, and they were taken prisoner by the French King Philip himself. Transported to Paris, Olivier and his fellow noblemen sat through an absurd show trial, which didn't take long to reach a shocking conclusion. On August 2nd, Olivier de Clisson, Lord of Brittany, knight, presumed defender of the king, received a conviction for treason. As the record states, and there, on a scaffold, had his head cut off. And then, from there, his corpse was drawn to the gibbet of Paris, and there hanged on the highest level, and his head was sent to Nantes in Brittany to be put on a lance over the Sauvetu gate as a warning to others. Now, if you're a king, struggling to maintain a grasp over your nation's loosely held territories and duchies, the idea is to appease your powerful lords, not decapitate them. Edward III knew this well. His predecessor, King John, had been forced to sign the Magna Carta nearly 150 years earlier. King Philip needed his lords and dukes. They did not necessarily need him. If England and France were fighting for Brittany's loyalty, executing the locals was just a hell of a PR choice. Even in 1343, you had to give a decent trial to a lord. You couldn't decapitate a lord. You couldn't stick the head of a lord on a pike for the crows. And for that matter, who was the king of France to behead a nobleman of Brittany? They could support who they wanted. Remember, Brittany isn't France. Olivier de Clisson was truly the Ned Stark of his day. In one fell swoop, King Philip, and by extension, Charles de Blois, made himself a whole bunch of enemies. None of them would exact such a merciless revenge as Olivier's wife, the furious, newly widowed Jeanne de Clisson. That summer, Jeanne de Clisson took her two sons, Olivier and Guillaume, on a family road trip from hell, a trip to Nantes, 
to see their father's head on a spike. That endless drive with your parents to the Grand Canyon is probably looking a lot better in hindsight. Jean, Olivier Jr., and Guillaume stared at Olivier Sr.'s deteriorating head, letting the rage flow through them, building the kind of grudge that lasts a lifetime. Screw Charles de Blois, and screw the King of France. Jeanne vowed revenge against her late husband's enemies, and to get it, she was willing to do anything, even align herself with her natural foe, the English. Returning home, Jeanne de Clisson found herself declared a traitor, and her estate was stripped almost bare. Not content with claiming her husband's life, the King of France also claimed his property. Besides, he would need that estate to pay for his now endless war. Oh yeah, that so-called truce with the English? Yeah, that was already over. Jeanne was wealthy in her own right, however, and she sold her jewelry and fine furnishings for cold, hard cash. Better yet, the English king, Edward III, recognized a powerful potential ally, and he offered the widow the income from some of England's own properties in Brittany. First, Jeanne used the cash to raise an army. She'd take her battles offshore eventually, but first, she'd make a hell of an impression on land. Whether attracted by Jeanne's cash or out of loyalty to Breton independence against the nefarious French king, Jeanne's army swelled with troops. Before long, Jeanne marched down the coast to the castle of Galois de Leuze. Galois was an old family friend, and he'd fought alongside Olivier on behalf of Charles de Blois. We don't know why Jeanne singled him out for revenge. All we know is that Galois did not suspect a thing. Galois opened the gates to Jeanne and her men, who promptly slaughtered everyone inside. Well, almost everyone. Jeanne deliberately spared one person as a witness. Tell them Jeanne de Clisson sent you. With that, Jeanne promptly ransacked the castle for all its valuables, sold them, and used the money to buy three warships. Turning her heels on her coastline carnage, Jeanne boarded her new ships and set sail, launching a career in piracy, which extended for 14 years. For French sailors, it was like something out of a nightmare, the stuff of tall tales and folklore. A foggy night, a calm sea, and suddenly, the Black Fleet. These were no English sailors. These ships sailed no English flag. Jeanne painted her ships black with pitch and dyed her sails blood red. Jeanne led the way on her flagship which she named My Revenge. The Black Fleet sailed up and down the French coast, sowing terror and revenge, offering no mercy, leaving almost no survivors. Again and again, a lone man or woman would turn up at a tavern not too far from the sea, covered in blood, speaking of a massacre and whispering a name. 
the Lioness of Brittany. Sailing with her sons, the Tragic Widow, as she came to be known in Paris, sailed from the Bay of Biscay to the ports of Flanders, sinking any ship that crossed her path. Others called her the Bloody Lioness, after her shield, which featured the sigil of the House of Clisson. Rumors swirled about her bloodthirsty nature. In some of the tales, Jeanne and her children personally oversaw the execution of the captured crews. In other tales, Jeanne swung the axe herself. As one scholar put it, the only thing certain was that every day the number of ships that did not reach their destination increased. Jeanne's ferocity turned in particular towards any captured French nobility. Their noble bloodlines were supposed to protect them from butchery. But then again, so was Olivier's, and his head had ended up on a spike. One after another, Jeanne delighted in murdering gentlemen, especially, the rumor went, those gentlemen unfortunate enough to be named Philip. On December 1st, 1343, King Philip had had enough. That day, French Parliament formally declared open season on the bloody lioness. The French Navy gave her their full attention. Still, it would be years before they finally tracked down the Black Fleet. In 1346, years after Parliament's declaration, English and French forces clashed at the Battle of Crecy. Who arrived to provision English troops with fresh supplies but Jeanne de Clisson and her black fleet? Once again, she eluded capture. But finally, sometime around maybe 1348, the French navy caught up with the black fleet at last. Long into the night, the black fleet fought back. Holding out on my revenge, Jeanne refused to give up, until almost all of her pirate fleet was dead. Finally, the French sailors boarded her flagship, making their way to the captain's cabin. But a lioness, like all cats, has nine lives. Jeanne de Clisson had disappeared. While the French fleet was making its way through the ship's interior, Jeanne, her sons, and a crew of six pirates had escaped on a tiny boat, heading out into the open English Channel. For six days, the boat drifted through freezing waters as the passengers edged closer to death. They had no food. They had no water. Their wet clothes froze in the winter air. Finally, at some point in their desperate escape, Jeanne's youngest son, Guillaume, died. After seven days adrift, the crew finally landed and to their amazement, they'd washed ashore on a friendly stretch of the Breton coast, where they found supporters of Jean de Montfort to supply them with food, water, warm clothes, and a decent burial for poor little Guillaume. But they couldn't stay for long. Charles de Blois's forces were patrolling the coast, so Jeanne and her remaining son, Olivier Jr., boarded another ship and retreated to England, Perhaps the French Navy would have pursued her, but all of a sudden they found themselves terribly distracted. 
Jean de Clisson was no longer the scariest thing to sail into port. The Black Death had come to town. If the French thought Jean de Clisson was bloodthirsty, she was nothing compared to the bubonic plague. While Jean and Olivier Jr. kept their heads down in England, France shuddered through an incomprehensible wave of death. England lost 25% of her population, but that was a blessing compared to the tragedy across the Channel. One half of the French population succumbed to the Black Death. By 1350, Olivier's executioner, King Philip VI, was dead. Jeanne had vowed revenge against France, and now half of France was dead. Perhaps she finally felt her oath was fulfilled. Whatever the case, in 1356, Jeanne de Clisson married one last time to an English military leader named Walter Bentley. Jeanne sent her son, Olivier Jr., to live at the court of Edward III. Here, Olivier Jr. made friends with a pivotal figure in the War of Breton Succession, Jean de Montfort Jr., the son of a ruthless lady pirate, and the son of a woman who had strapped armor on herself and led an army into battle, probably had a lot to talk about, and so it's not really a surprise that they became friends. Meanwhile, Jeanne de Clisson and her new English husband returned to Brittany at long last. They settled in the castle of Henbon, the very same castle where Jean de Montfort Jr.'s mother had led her famous charge. For an ex-lady pirate shopping for real estate, I guess you can't really beat those vibes. After a few years together, Jeanne de Clisson finally died in 1359. She'd outlived her first husband, her kind of second husband, her third husband, her third husband's murderer, her youngest son, and half of France. Most pirates didn't make it to 60. But most pirates were not the Lioness of Brittany. French historians like to refer to this time period as the War of the Three Jeans. Jeanne de Montfort, leading an army into battle on behalf of her husband and then her son, Jeanne de Pontieve, leading a rallying cry on behalf of her husband, Charles de Blois, and Jeanne de Clisson, terror of the high seas. These three women are notable, not only for their exploits, but for the way those exploits are remembered. At the time these three women were born, baby girls faced a thrilling set of life choices. You could die young. You could marry and die in childbirth. You could join a nunnery. Or, best case scenario, you can marry and have a bunch of kids and somehow survive their birth and maybe also a plague. These three women were all, shall we say, bold. They shattered the expectations, and sometimes the legs, of French society. But it turns out the French loved them for it. Jeanne de Montfort became so iconic she may have inspired most of the legends surrounding yet another woman named Jeanne. Oh my god, France, can't you have any female legends named, like, Violette? I... Anyway, Jeanne d'Arc and Jeanne de Montfort share a lot of overlapping mythology. It's hard to pick apart the influences. Jeanne de Pontieve ultimately lost, 
Her husband, Charles de Blois, did not become the Duke of Brittany. But hey, she ended up a countess. Not too shabby. And of course, Jeanne de Clisson managed to go on a murderous rampage across the high seas, living the pirate's life for a decade and a half, and then, somehow, managed to live out a peaceful retirement and die of natural causes in her home territory. As time went by, Jeanne's legendary exploits faded from memory. But Jeanne had something special, something that almost none of the recent kings of France or dukes of Brittany had had. When she died, she had a living heir. His name was Olivier de Clisson, Jr. One day, he would be known as the Butcher. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and I'm going to go turn on all of the lights, and I'm going to watch Practical Magic and count down the days until it's culturally acceptable to start putting up my Christmas tree. For those of you in the United States, and frankly, those of you who aren't, well done on taking a little time away from the news. It's hard. Don't doom scroll. Instead, check your inboxes soon for the new free issue of the Land of Desire newsletter with all kinds of soothing distractions to carry us through. You can sign up for the newsletter at thelandofdesire.substack.com. Until next time, au revoir!